Lord, we just come before you. We thank you for this opportunity to gather together into fellowship and to look at what you would have us to see. We ask that you guide and lead us as we go through the book of Ezekiel and that we will see what you would have us to see from all of this. And we just thank you in your son's name. Amen. Amen. All right. The name of the book is Ezekiel. And we look at this and Ezekiel means God will strengthen or God will prevail. So this is his name and it's all really about God prevailing. It's considered one of the books of mystery. It fits into the same category as Revelation, Daniel, and Ezekiel, which is why I'm tackling Ezekiel while we're on this eschatology and end times set. We'll take the last major book on that, that topic. Uh, much of this book is going to have images and symbols and it's going to have all the stuff. It teaches very clear teachings, but it is a somewhat complex book at times because of all the images. And Ezekiel will be told to do lots of different things that kind of sometimes don't seem to make any sense when God tells them to, but they have the, the, the point that he's bringing out on this. And so we look at this, uh, Ezekiel was a contemporary of Daniel and Jeremiah. So he was around when Jeremiah started preaching, went into captivity, and would have known Daniel as well. Now, he may not have been an intimate friend of Daniel, but he would have known of Daniel. He would have known about what Daniel was doing. He was a captive in Babylon, and that's what we're going to find out in the beginning. And he prophesied for over 22 years. So he has a long time for, for his prophecies. He was a priest before he was taken, taken away. So much of what he goes through and much of what he looks at in his, in his visions and his, and his uh, stories have a image of the temple and, will, and the priestly duties. So this is something we want to be kind of aware of as he looks at things, we'll see pictures of the temple. And so our studies from Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers will come into play as we look at what happens, you know, and what he is thinking of when he sees some of these things. So we're going to... He's a Levite. He was definitely a Levite. And if he was a priest, he was actually a member of the, the family of Aaron, because it, otherwise he would not be a priest. He would just be a Levite. And all, all, all of Aaron's sons are Levites, but not all Levites are in Aaron's. And so he is going to be the prophecy. He oftentimes repeats things for emphasis and for force of force. So we're going to see him quite often saying the same thing over and over and over again because he's trying to bring that emphasis. And this is something I've noticed anyway, not just with Ezekiel, but God in his books is keep saying things over and over again. I find myself sometimes looking at what we're teaching. I'm going, I taught this in another book. I taught this and I, I feel like I'm teaching the same thing over, but it's because that's what's in the scriptures. Yeah, I noticed that too in some different chapters or the same thing. I'm like, oh, I got that. Yeah. It's good because then I remember it. Otherwise, I never remembered it. And that's exactly what it is. God knows that we're humans and that we need to have things pounded into our head and repeated five million times before we finally remember it. And, but it does sometimes, you know, once you've got it, it kind of like, okay, God, I got this. Can we move on to the next point? And he's, you know, and it's... I go back and I would try to find it. 
Uh huh. Many times that is that is the way it is. So, so he's going to teach. He's going to everything he comes through comes from the in, the direction of a priest, and so we're going to see that. And the priests were the ones that would teach in the temples in many cases, and so we're going to see all that. The symbology of the 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 temple is going to be very strong in his in what he says. The outline of the book is very simple. Uh, the first three chapters are we're going to see the call of Ezekiel, all right, and who who uh, who he is who he is as Ezekiel the, that he's a captive he sees God and he sees the coming task that he's record, re, going to be recording. We see the all kinds of very vivid imagery that people have tried to draw out and try to figure out, and it, a lot of it doesn't make sense in a in a physical, but but we're going so to see who, that. Who wrote this chapter? Ezekiel's the author. Oh, he's the author. Yes, Ezekiel's the author of the of the book, and so it's named after him. And we're going to see that it tells us him. From verses from chapters four through thirty-two, we basically see him talking about the apostate condition of of Judah. And apostate means a person guilty of complete for, completely forsaking one's religion, faith, or principles. So they're going to say, he's going to say, you have turned away from God, which is, of course, why they're in Babylon in the first place. They turned away from God, and God judged them. So we see that prediction coming in, and mostly that's through visions and warnings and, act, and activities that he's told to do. And then verses, uh, chapters 33 through 48 are going to be hit the predictions and promises. And we're going to see, you know, part of what he sees is that God's glory has departed from the temple. He talks about the fall of Jerusalem. And then he also talks about the coming return of God's glory to Israel. All right, so he says God's glory left, left Israel, and that was in Jehoiakim's time, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin's time, <laughs> the two, two king, last two kings, and the glory departed and God said, it's time for you to be judged. And they were judged. And he says, he talks about the fall of Jerusalem, which he saw as he went into captivity. And then he's going to say, but, but there is a time when God's glory is coming back. So we're going to see all of these things. He gives a lot of uh, warnings. Uh, he talks about the displacement of the Jews, revival coming, the overthrow and the, real, and the return of God's glory. So this is, this is just the overview of the book. Uh, it was written around 595, 96 BC and um, during the captivity of Israel. So verse one. Now it came to pass in the 30th year, in the fourth month, in the fifth year of that month, as I was among the captives by the river Sebar, that the heavens were opened up and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, which was the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's captivity, the word of the Lord came expressly unto Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Sebar, and the hand of the Lord was there upon me. So we've got a very specific time, place, and who being given to us. 
It tells us in the 30th year. Now, there is a lot of debate as what he's talking about as the 30th year. Uh, and we don't know for sure what he's talking about on that one. And nobody does. There's all kinds of different thoughts and everything on that. So we're not going to get into that. But he does say in the second verse, in the fifth year, in the, in the fifth day of the month, that was the fifth year of Jehoiachin's captivity. All right. So he uses a Jewish time frame to tell us where we're at. Jehoiachin reigned for eight years, then was taken captive, and now he's telling us that it is five years into that captivity of Jehoiachin. And so we know that it's the 13 years from his reign. And again, this doesn't tell us what the 30th year. We don't know if it's his, his age, because that would make sense, because at 30 years old they would start their their ministry in many cases. We don't know if he's trying to go back into Nebuchadnezzar's time frame. There's just not enough there. He doesn't tell us what the 30th year is, and there's all kinds of speculation. So, but he is in at the river Sebar. And this is what I gave the maps out for. If you look up uh, between uh, Haran and Nineveh, you're going to see the river uh, Sebar or Kubar, Kubur River, which is how it's pronounced, uh, spent today, and it's off the Euphrates, and it is northwest, more north than west of Babylon, the capital city. And Babylon is where David, uh, where Daniel would be, and he is up there. Uh, Ezekiel is more up, up uh, northwest of there, and most of the children of Israel are up in that area. So this is, I give you this map just so you can see. Now the name Haran should ring a bell to you because that is where Abraham stayed after he left Ur of the Chaldees, which is on the southeast part of your map. You'll see Ur. And so Abraham, when he was called by God, left Ur of Chaldees and went up to Haran, stopped for several decades, and then finally went across the Euphrates down to the promised land where he spent the rest of his life. So this kind of gives you an idea. This land has been around for a long time. We, we know it in Western civilization as the uh, cradle of civilization. It is where they believe that civilization pretty much started. And so we see all of this area coming about. And it probably is because the Ark would have fallen more to the east here and then they went west out of the ark and would have come into this land which is why they named the rivers euphrates and and the tigers because it reminded them of their original rivers that they saw before the flood so this whole area was where somewhere in those mountains off to the east would have been where the ark rested and then they flowed down and then expanded from there and and we know the tower of babel there in babylon is where where King Nimrod started it, and they started to build that massive tower that God changed the languages and spread everybody around the world. So this is that area. This area has been populated from as far back as the, right after the Noadic flood. So again, this is our location, and I'm just bringing all this stuff out. And Ezekiel is out by the river Sebar, and he says, the heavens opened and he saw visions of God. And you think about this. He's out there. He's a captive. As far as he's concerned, the glory is gone. 
He may or may not be thinking about Dan what Daniel thought about at the end of his life. You know, hey, we were told we were going to be here for 70 years. He may or may not have been understanding that. He's, you know, he's old enough to be a priest, so he's not probably going to make it ever back through the end of the 70 years of captivity. So it's probably not on the forefront of his mind. But you can understand the depression that he's probably in. We are gone. We are no longer at our home. And in his case, he goes, I'm never, even if he did know the, the prophecies, he's saying, I will never go back home. And so there's this depression, and all of a sudden, he sees visions of God. And you know, how often does God come to us when we're at our lowest point? <laughs> Whenever we think everything's going wrong, and we would just be meditating upon God, sometimes we see that vision of God. And he steps in and he says, I've got a plan. I've got something for you to do. Here, here's my vision. Here's what, you know. And we can be able to be turned oftentimes if we just look. And God oftentimes waits until we're in the in middle of the hardest point in our life. Just to say, Here, here's what I have for you. You were willing to trust me. Here's what I have. And then it says in verse 3, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans. Chaldeans are the same as the Babylonians. Buzi's is his father. So Buzi would be his father's. Is Ezekiel's father. That's what it says. He's from the line of The Aaron. son of Buzi. He's from the line of Aaron, but Aaron's been dead for over 400 years at this point. Four or 500 years. So... Buzi is Ezekiel's father. And so the hand of the Lord was upon him. Verse 4, And I looked, and behold, a whirlwind came out of the north, a great cloud and a fire enfolding itself, and a brightness was about it. And out of the mist there was the color of amber out of the midst of the fire. Also out of the midst thereof came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man, and everyone had four faces, and everyone had four wings, and their feet were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like the color of burnished brass, and they had hands of a man under the wings on the four sides, and they had four, and they had, they four had their faces and their wings. Their wings were joined one to another. They they turned not when they when they went and they were everyone and they went everyone straight forward for the likeness of their faces and their they four had the faces of a man the face of a lion the face on the right side and they had the face of an ox on the left and they also had the face of an eagle thus were their faces and wings were stretched up two wings to each one of them were joined one to another and they with two they covered their bodies and they went everyone straight forward whither their spirit was to go and they went and they turned not when they turned went so we're going to look at this because this is a very strange picture and i've seen several people try to paint this one this type of picture and it kind of looks funny no matter how you do it and so the real question is did he literally see things that that were these or were, are these symbols and and we're not going to tackle that whole topic because I don't know the answer to that one. If it's symbolic, there's different, different views on it. And if you really saw something that looks like this, there's, there's a way to look. And we're going to try to flesh out 
both ideas, and you can make your decision on what you want to. But he says he so looked and saw a whirlwind come out of the north, and a whirlwind, you know, is that that whirling wind, and he saw a cloud, a great cloud, and fire enfolding on itself, and thunder and lightning. We, we, this brings us into the picture of a couple of different things. Uh, number one, the idea of coming from the north. There was an idea in the Jewish mentality that God dwells in the north. Uh, the north is the overall aspect of it. When they talk about Jerusalem, Jerusalem, no matter where they are in, in Israel, they talk about Jerusalem being on the north, the north side of the mountain, even though it covers the whole mountain pretty much. It's always considered the north. Uh, this is given to us in Psalm 48.10 that he says, On the sides of the north, the city of the great king. Isaiah 14.13 gives that same type of uh, message. And I just want to read that one. I, I don't know that one by heart like I do Psalm. <laughs> Isaiah 14.3 says, And it shall come to pass in the day that the Lord shall give you rest from their sorrow and from your fears. Am I reading the right verse? It doesn't look like it. 13. For thou hast said in your heart, I will ascend into the heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of heaven. I will sit in the congregation of the mountain in the sides of the north. And this is part of the statement of Satan that he was going to sit. He was going to dwell with God on the sides of the north. And for the Jews, there's this mentality that the north represents the, the throne room of God, the heavens, the height. So he's seeing this whirlwind coming out of the north could literally just mean that he sees it coming from heaven and not just north. So again, this takes us into the physical or the, or the symbolic. It could be either the symbol he saw it coming from God and he, and he says the north, or it could literally mean that it came from from the north. It came from the direction north of where he was coming from. Um, and he saw a great cloud and fire enfolding on its and brightness and the color of it and in the midst of it. And he, so he's seeing this very thick cloud with thunder and lightning. And if you remember our, in, in Exodus on Mount Sinai, in, in Exodus 19, uh, verses 16 through 19, basically, if you remember, when they, God was going to speak to the children of Israel, he descended upon Mount Sinai in a thick cloud with thunders and lightning and fire lit on the mountain and the people were terrified and there was an earthquake. So, again, did he literally see something that was a whirlwind with fire and lightning or is he coming back and saying, this is how God presented himself in many cases? When God came down upon the completed tabernacle, he came down in a thick cloud with the, the lightnings and everything on it. So God is oftentimes pictured as this cloud hiding his, his glory. So again, we're seeing, we're seeing this whole picture. One thing we know about these beasts that come out in, verse, in chapter 10, we know that they're cherubim that he's seeing that he's describing. Now, do all cherubim look like what he's describing? We don't know because this is the only clear description of cherubim that we have in the whole scripture. So we, cherubim are one of the classes of angels. There's two classes of angels that we know of, the cherubim and the seraphim. And then usually in art, when you see a cherub or a cherubim, it's a little baby thing with wings flying around. 
Uh, if you see pictures of, uh, of Cupid, he's supposed to be a cherub that flies around in his little diaper and shoots the arrow. That, oh. that's, he's, that's, that's what they're called. That's what they're, what they're trying to say. And this does not sound anything like what our artists have painted cherubim to be. There was a cherub that was put at the entrance of the Garden of Eden with the sword, I mean, uh, that turned in all directions. So this could very well be what all cherubim look like. We don't know. Again, we don't know if it's been sensationalized to represent the uh, omnipresence of God and all of that and all seeing nature of God or if this is what he actually saw. Uh, this is this is the problem that oftentimes when you see something that is so much greater than your mind can comprehend, sometimes it has to be brought out in symbols, which we look at how John saw things in our time that he couldn't even describe, and trying to describe them uh, is kind of a, you know, we get these kind of weird pictures, and we go, well, maybe he was talking about this. So... Here we have him seeing something that is so far beyond anything he can comprehend. And it could be that God showed it in symbols. It could be that he just wrote up whatever, whatever he... Uh, human some kind of human interpretation. Uh, there are many people that say, well, this sounds like a, a rocket, uh, some kind of rocket being fired off and hovering around. And, you, know, that start, you start getting into some really weird interpretations out there. All I'm going to say is this is what it says. And what did he see? Well, later on he tells us he saw a cherubim. Okay, so we, if this is what all cherubim look, it's kind of horrifying in a sound, but it's, I, I do believe there's some symbology in here as well. But as I've always said, I take things literally unless I have to be able to make them be symbolic. And the storm and everything sounds to me more like Sinai than it does a real what he saw, so and it reminds me of Sinai. It reminds me of the cloud that covers the the tabernacle. It reminds me of the cloud that led them through the through the wilderness, and that's how God seems to have presented Himself for many many generations. So I'm gonna I'm going to say it's very likely that it is a sim symbol of God that He saw, because this is His calling as we get through this whole section. When He says that these beasts that came out had a likeness of man, which probably means that they had two legs and stood upright, because he's going to talk about them standing upright. So in some ways, it sounds like angels have a similar look, except that they have wings. And so, but you look at how he describes them. He goes, they had four faces and they had four wings. All right, four faces is kind of bizarre. Uh, face on each side of the head, I don't know. I, it's kind of hard to picture. But, and they had feet that were straight, and the soles of their feet were like calves' foot. So it seems like they have on the base of their feet hooves rather than feet. And so this is where we see them standing upright, probably two-legged, you know, which made, made him think of man as he looked at them. But that's about where the resemblance ends. They have two legs, and they have hands. And it says that they sparkled like the color of burnished brass. Okay, that bright, shiny look that polished brass has. And so they have a 
sparkling, a brightness to them. And, and, they and they had hands of a man under their wings on their four sides, and they had four, and the four had faces and wings. So four faces, four wings. Now there are many people, I'm going to just throw this out, who keep looking at this word four being revealed, and they think of the four quadrants of the world. They start thinking about the omnipresence of God being represented here. And I'm not going to say that that's not a bad definition of it, uh, because the four does oftentimes talk about the four, the four points of the compass, the, the entirety of everything. So is he seeing four faces and four wings? Probably. Is it a picture and symbol of God's omnipresence covering the world? That's possible, too. Did he really see something with four faces and four wings? That's possible as well. I'm not, I, I want to be very careful as I do this because I struggle. When I look at this, I go, I can't even picture what this looks like. And I've, I've told you all many times, I don't have much of a, an imagination. So when I see, or see something like this, okay, I'll get four faces. All right, that looks weird enough. Uh, then we really get down to the really weird stuff. Uh, this stuff I can handle. Four faces, okay, all around the head. He's got a face on each side of the head. Four wings with, with hands and, and then feet that have hooves at the, at the bottom of them. And they're standing on this cloud that's spinning around and, and they're coming out of this cloud with the uh, spinning and thundering lightning coming out of the presence of God. I can, I can picture all of that. When we get further into this, it starts getting to be a little hard for me to picture. To me, they sure have an extreme imagination. It's like a really bad monster movie. <laughs> I, I don't know what I would think of if I saw somebody with, the, with that kind of face, you know, a face of a man, a lion, a cow, and, a, and an eagle. So, again, we want to be very careful as we look at this because we don't have a lot here to stand on. And as I've shared before, my in, rules for interpretation say that if it can be taken literally, it's to be taken literally. So I can see it literal, but I can also see how this could be very picturesque and you know, full of symbol. And the type of book that it is tends to want us to look at symbols. All right? We're putting it into the same category as Daniel, which had all these symbols, and Revelation, which has all the symbols. So it is quite possible that these are just symbolic and saying this is the omnipresence of God and the power, power of God. So, again, I'm not going to take a hard stance. This first part I can easily see being true. I mean, okay, the legs look a little funny with hooves at the bottom of it. Uh, kind of weird that they have wings and, a, and four faces, but I can, I can almost picture that. I can almost picture that. I'm not quite sure what four faces would look like around the head, but uh, probably no hair. Which is why people will grab hold of it and say that it's some kind of rocket or alien or, you know, that, wow, see, this is proof of aliens is where, you know, where some people will come out of this chapter and no, say. I just don't yeah. I'm just saying this is, there is a school of thought that says this is so alien in nature and it just, it's a proof of, proof of aliens. And I don't go that far. I don't, I don't want to even begin to go that, but this is a chapter that people look at if they want to believe in aliens and all of that, this is where they go and say, see, they're in the Bible. That's a, so, that's a way back when they, and I say, and this is 
Yep. And it says they had hands of the man under their wings on the four sides, and the four had their faces and their wings. So their wings end up with a terminus of a hand, which is kind of hard to, hard to picture as well. But, and it says their wings were joined one together, and, and they turned when they went, and they went everyone straight forward, which is kind of interesting that they're turning, but they're going straight. So this is, this is where it starts to get to be really hard to understand. But it says basically, and there's a, we get further on, their faces are looking up and their arms. So they're, they're almost in a pose of worship as we think about that the one set of arms is reaching up and they're joining hands as they reach up to God in worship. And then it says that their faces are turned up toward God. So they're, 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 they're focused on God completely during all of this. And so we see, and they go around, and it says, As for the likeness of their faces, they had, the four had a face of a man, the face of a lion, and on the right side, and, on the, and they had, the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and the four had the face of an eagle. Now there are two major discussions on these faces that people have brought up. Uh, one is, again, that the, this really represents the omnipresence of God, God looking in all directions at the same time. They talk about the man being the pinnacle of God's creation, the lion being the, the ruler of the, the animal kingdom, basically, the eagle being the, the pinnacle of the bird kingdom, and the ox being the pinnacle of the domesticated animals. And that could be what it's saying, that these are representing the, the four powers of the, again, that four number coming in in completion. And so we, that may be all he's seeing in symbolic form. He's seeing the height of all of creation all, in all categories. And so the, the, that he's seeing this when he looks at the cherubim. Another idea is, if you remember back when we were talking about the tabernacle in Exodus, I gave you out a sheet that had the standards of the tribes of Israel as they camped around the, the tabernacle. Reuben's standard is a man, and basically just the face of a man. Judah's standard is the lion. Ephraim is the ox. And Dan is the eagle, and those were the heads of, the, of each of the groups, which represent just what we're seeing here in the faces of the cherubim who are encircled around. And what are they encircled around? God and the, the tribe circled around the tabernacle. And being that he's a priest, he could very easily be seeing the idea of the tabernacle being surrounded by the standards. I don't know if that's true or not. It makes sense to me. Again, is it something he really saw or is it symbology? If it's something he really saw, it's just something weird that he saw. Uh, but I don't know that that's true. I kind of think that there's some symbology here. And a lot of it I do believe. He's seeing the omnipresence of God. He's seeing God in the center being moving outward from there. And so, again, we're not going to take a really hard stance on this because... Nobody has any definitive answers anywhere. The more I studied this, the more weird answers I saw. So I really kind of gave up on some of it. All we do know is that these are the cherubim that he's seeing coming out of the presence of God and being displayed to him in this particular way. 
And then in verse 11 it says, And their faces and their wings were stretched upward. Two wings of everyone were joined one to another, and with two they covered their bodies. So we see this covering. The angels seem to cover their bodies. We see this here in the cherubim's description. In Isaiah 6, we see the seraphim being described, and with the seraphim, they're described as having six wings. And Isaiah tells us with, with two they fly, with two they cover their, their eyes, and with two they cover their, cover their bodies. So again, we see this covering of themselves in, in the presence. And they cover themselves with their wings. And what all that means, I'm not quite sure. There's just, you know, there's some people that believe that they're using their wings to, as clothing when they appear before men. Do you think if this is actually what they look like, this is exactly what we're going to see in heaven. Uh, not taking too much from Sunday's message, but seraphim seem to be in the presence of God and, and worshiping God, and cherubim seem to be who he sends out to do his work. Well, I don't think it looks as bad as it sounds. I mean, it's, it sounds it sounds, sounds weird anyway. Yeah. Verse 12 says, And they went everyone straight forward, whither the Spirit was to go, and they went, and they turned not when they went. And this idea of straightforward can also mean they moved outside the boundaries. Rather than them moving, the boundaries may have moved out. And this kind of makes a little more sense to me that as they moved, the boundaries of God were spread out further and further. They, they may have gone out, but God's actual boundaries of his... Of his uh, spirit moved out rather than them because they're staying connected so they're either growing as they move forward or you know and it gets this says they always move forward so if they're tied up in a four square uh, kind of a knot and somebody's moving forward that means somebody's moving backwards and two are moving sideways so it, it's hard to understand this statement they're either both all moving forward and their arms are getting longer and they're getting bigger as they go forward or there's something there that we don't understand or just the boundaries of God's presence are moving outward. And this is kind of what we see in our lives. How often as we grow, we watch God's boundaries in our life get bigger and bigger within our life and take more of our life and take more of sphere of influence in our, in our life because he is growing his boundaries. Not that we're changing, not in all that much but he is growing within us and I think this is kind of what they're saying again this is this is one of those places where it's hard to figure out all of what God is trying to say and see and it says for their likeness of the four living be beings they appeared as burning coals of fire and like the appearance of a lamp and they went up and down among the living creatures and the fire was bright and the fire went forth and out of the fire went forth lightning. And the four living creatures ran and returned as the appearance of a flash of lightning. So we see here a bright light. And we think about this. What is it when we look at a burning ember? That bright red glowing uh, fire that's there. And this is, I think he's trying to talk about how much the heat of God was dwelling on them. Because we saw the same thing in... And Isaiah, when he saw the seraphim, he's, he's ready to fall upon his face and God used the embers of the fire of the altar to touch him and said, now your, your, your lips are cleaned. 
And here we're seeing this lightness, burning fire, the appearance of a lamp, it's shown. Okay, light, a lamp always shines out light. And you really can't look at it all that much. And it says that it, the fire went up and down among the creatures, and the fire was bright, and out of it went forth lightning. This is kind of, when we talk about the idea of being a scary picture, this is kind of a scary picture. They've got this, you know, four living beings. They seem to be lit on, lit on fire. The fire is running up and down their bodies. Lightning is shooting out of this fire. You know, again, I think we're seeing the power of God being it's represented in some way. Some kind, something big, something big, oh, something yeah, large. Yeah. And we're seeing the lightning striking out from them. We're seeing the fire and the flames coming up out of them. We're seeing the presence of God being revealed. And so this is why there's this huge look as to what is going up. They've, they've joined their hands. They're, they're looking up toward God as, as far as our, pre our presentation of it would be. We look up when we think about God. And they're looking up. They're, they're joined in purpose. They're joined in unity. Their hands are, are wrapped to, are together. There's this fire. There's this power emanating out of them. And God is being made present with them. And this is very different from most of the stories that we hear about angels. This is not the kind of angel we saw talking to, to Joshua as he's getting ready for battle. This is not the type of picture we have of the angel talking to uh, Zacharias in the temple that John the Baptist was going to be born. I don't think this is the type of angel that Mary saw. It, you know, Mary was only a young teenager. If she saw something like this, she would have been dead, not, not accepting a, a call. Uh, John doesn't talk about this being the, what, he, what he saw. Daniel doesn't really talk about this. He saw Michael the archangel and, and saw something that he could relate to. So this I'm wondering what exactly he saw. Did he see this? There's just a vision and God's trying to give him a bunch of symbols of his power. Again, don't know. I wouldn't call these angels. The huh? Way they look. I said, I wouldn't call these angels the way they look. Well, we know that he's going to tell us later on that they were angels, that they were the cherubim. Uh, but they're not the way they're normally described. And if this is what they look like, it's yeah. interesting. So... But again, this is why a lot of people believe that he's talking about the power of God through the, through the flame because the flame, fire and flame usually represents either God's judgment or his purification of people. All right, He's either judging people through the, through the power of the flame or he's purifying and getting the dross out of our life. So this is why most people look at this that, I, that I've read and they look at this and say this is a lot of symbology showing God's power and his omnipresence with the faces looking all directions at the same time and always going forward which shows his omnipresence I tend to agree with that that this is symbolic and and showing that but again there's nothing there that says it has to be it's just a weird picture if it's if it is what it is if it is real it's a weird picture but there's nothing there that cannot be true physically so and it says, and the living creatures ran and returned as the appearance of a flash of lightning. So it seems that what they would do is they'd go forward out and then they would come back. If you've ever watched lightning come down, it just starts and stops, starts and stops. And so we're seeing that kind of a picture of these 
images. In verse 15, Now I beheld the living creatures. Behold, one wheel upon the earth by the living creatures with his four faces, and the appearance of the wheels and their work was likened to the color of beryl, and they had four, and they four had one likeness, and their appearance and their work was as it were a wheel in the middle of a wheel. When they went, they went upon their four sides, and they turned not when they went. So here we have this picture now of these creatures having some kind of wheel underneath them. And there used to be a consideration that there were some kind of chariot there that they were riding in. And, but we see the wheel within a wheel, and this to us in our day and age represents the gyroscope, where you have a wheel spinning inside a wheel, and it does not, it does not fall, and it goes back and forth and controls navigation in, in most of the ve older vehicles. So could it be a gyroscope that's being described here? Maybe. Uh, is a wheel within a wheel it sounds a lot like a gyroscope, but it says they had a wheel and their wheels were like the color burl, which is a yellowish color. And they all had one likeness. Again, we have this picture of one purpose, oneness. They've joined their hands. They're focused on God. They're, 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 they're joined together and they're looking at and they have that uh, same appearance. We're seeing the, the oneness of purpose or the, or the unity of purpose and their unity that's being represented here. And they went about their sides and they turned not when they went. And... So we, again, we have this picture of some kind of mode of transportation that they're doing. Uh, the chariot of God, you know, when Elijah was taken up by the chariot of God, was this what they, something of this nature of what they were seeing? We don't know. But again, we have this very interesting picture of wheels. Wheels all of a sudden being presented here. And I think part of it was that he didn't see them wandering on the ground so that they and they and the speed that they were wandering and moving around probably made him think of chariots and their wheels that chariots have because the chariot in his day was about the fastest thing that you could could be traveling with uh, so again we see this kind of interesting interesting picture verse 18 and and for their rings they were so high that they were dreadful and their rings were full of eyes around about them four. And rings here have two different kind of ideas. It could be the rims of their, of their wheels, which would be kind of bizarre to have lights or flashing. Some people think they're flashing lights instead of eyes. This word also has the rings of a fortress. And you have, if you know things about fortresses, you have the outer wall, and then you would have the inner wall, and then you would have the citadel at the very center of it, and it would have rings around that. And so it's possible that that's what they're talking about, rings of guarding of some sort. Uh, but that is hard to believe because citadels don't move. Uh, you know, cities don't move, but maybe he's picturing some kind of protective wall around them and being guarded, or he's literally talking about the rim having some kind of lights or something. And again, this takes us somewhat into that kind of idea of the this, this supernatural, sci-fi type mentality. But this, again, is one of those things that, how do you picture this? How do you picture this? We got wheels, we got a wheel within a wheel, and all of it's flashing, and, 
and looking like eyes around it. And so this is a very bizarre picture. And it's one that, again, once we get past that first part where they have four wings, two legs that have hooves at the end and four faces, beyond that, I, have, I can't picture what this looks like. I, I, I one time tried to figure this out and it just, you know, the more I, more I tried to picture it, the more weird the picture got. And to the point where I just couldn't, couldn't even picture it anymore. And I've seen people try to pick, you know, paint this and draw this, and it just it gets to be unreal. And some people with creative minds may make more sense out of it than I do. To me, it's very hard to picture what's going on here. And it says, And when the living creatures went, the wheels went with them, went by them, and when the living creatures were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up. Whosoever the spirit was to go, whithersoever the spirit was to go, they went with, thither was their spirit to go, and the wheels were lifted up over against them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. So here we go. We have another kind of an interesting thing. We've got the wheels, and it says that basically their life and their spirit were in these wheels. So there are many people that will describe this as somehow looking at, calling them a, calling it a chariot. They, they rode in something. And so here we are looking at this. They're going around and if they lifted up, the wheels lifted up. If they came down, the wheels touched the ground and they went straight and they went forward and they moved and, and wherever the spirit was to go, they went and their spirit and the wheels lifted up and then they came back down. Verse 21, when those went, these went and when they stood, they stood and when they were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up over against them, for the spirit of the living creature was in the wheels. So again, I've got that repeating of that, time, that statement. So this means something to them. Somehow they are tied to these wheels. And this is, there's a verse in Psalms that talks about God riding on the cherub. So maybe the cherubs are some, have some form of locomotion that fits this description. And again, as, as has been said, to us, this just sounds like a weird description. He's got angels that have wings that they can fly, and when they're on the ground, they roll around on wheels, and, and God can ride on them, and it's you know, kind of a bizarre look. And the likeness of the firmament upon the heads of the living creatures was as the color, and, as the color of the terrible crystal stretched forth over their heads above. So there was some kind of crystal reflective material on top of their heads or above their heads. And under the firmament was their wings straight and one together with the other. Everyone had two which covered its side and everyone had two that covered the, on the side of their bodies. And when they went, they heard the noise of their wings like the noise of great waters as the voice of the Almighty, the voice of speech as the noise of a host as they stood and let down their wings. So this is talking about, you figure how big those wings must be to create a noise that he's saying is the noise of a great water fl flowing. And uh, so these are very large wings, and as you said, very large creatures. Uh, very large creatures that he's, that he's seeing, with, when, they, when they flap their wings, they make a great noise. And this is, Something that if you've been around a bird that's come, come, ever come close to you, a big bird, and you hear them flap their wings and, and the noise, and you can almost picture this one, they have a very large wingspan. It sounds like almost like a dragon's wing. 
And it could be. To me, it sounds more like a rock, the old large bird of mythologies. So. But they, do, they have noise, and when they flap their wings, they are extremely noisy with their flapping. And there was a voice in the firmament that was over their heads, and they stood, and they let down their wings. And above the firmament that was over their heads, the likeness of a throne, and the appearance of a sapphire stone, and upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness of the appearance of, the man, of a man above it. And I saw as the color of amber as the present appearance of the fire around about within it, from the appearance of his loins even upward, from the appearance of his loins even downward, I saw that there was the appearance of fire and it had the brightness round about it. So here he's seeing a, some form of picture of God. They, the cherubim started out, they did their little running around, probably making sure nothing was wrong, and then we get the picture of God's throne. All right, we're seeing the throne. The firmament over their head was the likeness of a throne. In the appearance of sapphire stone, a reddish, reddish appearance. And the likeness of the throne was the likeness of the appearance of a man above it. So we've got a man on the throne. And he saw the color of amber and the appearance around of the fire around about it and with the appearance of his loins even upward and from the appearance of his loins even downward I saw there what appeared to be fire and a brightness round about. So he looks up at this throne, sees something that looks a little bit like a man on the throne and that man seems to be on fire. You know, again, the power of God, the burning nature of God, the cleansing nature of God. And as the appearance of a bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness around about it. For this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And I saw it and I fell on my face and I heard the, a voice of one that spoke. So what else did he see around the, the throne? He saw the rainbow. He saw the rainbow, the rainbow, the promise that God was not going to destroy this world again by flood. And we know that Revelation tells us he's going to destroy the world by fire in the last days at the very end and then recreate it but he sees the promise of God not to destroy by rain and we see this picture of the rainbow all over in the scriptures God's promise this is what God sees when he looks at us he sees his promise not to destroy until the end and he says there was this likeness and then it says I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one that spoke. This is the amazing thing. He goes through a long list of what he saw on these angels, but the amazing thing is every time somebody sees God or, or the angels, they fall, they fall. This is why, even though I love the song, I can only imagine, you know, and it says, what will I do when, God, when, when I stand before your presence? The answer is very obvious to anybody who studied the scriptures, we get into the presence of God, especially those first couple times, we're going to fall down to our knees on our face because we know we will all of a sudden know that we, even in our glorified bodies, do not deserve to be there. And this is his reaction. People see the angels. In this case, he sees God. He falls on his face. When the Israelites at Mount Sinai heard God thundering, they, they ran back and hid in, their, hid in their tents saying, go, you go talk to them. We don't want to have anything to do with them. Moses, when he comes to the fire, 
fiery bush, he gets on his knees because that's what God says, take your shoes off, it's holy, and he falls to his face. You know, we see this over and over that people fall to their, their knees when they're in the presence of God. And this is something I have found over in my life. When I come into God's presence, it is humbling. I may not fall to my face, but I definitely get that opinion. I am unworthy to be in this place. God, thank you that you even, even do this. And I've shared with you, there's been times when I will be worshiping, especially in singing, worshiping God in song, where I just come into his presence and just am overwhelmed for just a few minutes while it's, well, it seems like minutes, and sometimes it seems longer, but I know it's not because the song's still going when I come out of it. But just, you're in God's presence and it's like, oh, how wonderful. And it gives you just that taste of what heaven's going to be like for just that momentary time. And sometimes even studying, I'll just be overwhelmed and say, wow, this is so wonderful. But God has a presence that he's trying to bring in. He's trying to show. And he shows here with, with Ezekiel at the start the great power that he's going to represent. His omnipresence with the, all the different directions that he's looking at the same time. And that the God is everywhere. And he wants to, make, to understand that he is everywhere. He is everything and he is the creator of everything. So that's the part to understand that. Because um, there's this whole world, you're thinking, well, there's more important things. And when I'm asked for something, like, <clears throat> like, you know, there's a lot more bigger problems. Not to God. I mean, mine, I mean, mine are little ones, but I mean, like, don't wait my time. Let me do something that has a big problem, you know, a bigger problem. But no, no problem to God is a big one anyway, so. And he just offers to have these uh, interactions with us at, at, at everything that we do. And it's a wonderful thing. Let's go ahead and close. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to come before you and to see your power as represented in this, in this chapter. And we ask that you just give us opportunities to get to know you and be drawn so close to you that we will be able to get those glimpses into heaven. And we just thank you in your son's name. Amen.